What an honor it is to be able to greet you in this way and in your homes this Sunday after Christmas. Uh, I trust that Christmas was amazing for you folks, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing with you what's on my heart. But to start, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for this incredible season. Thank you for all the celebration that is Christmas that we've all been a part of. Thank you for family and friends and gifts and gift giving. And our prayer now, Lord, in this Sunday between Christmas and the beginning of a new year, that you would speak to us, that you would touch that part of our lives that would make us more like you, even through this moment as we're gathering with friends and family in our homes, that you would, you would touch that part of us. And we would end our time together knowing very clearly this is the area that God's working on in me. And Lord, in order for that to happen, we don't need to hear from another person. We want to hear from you. And we know, Holy Spirit, you can come even through this incredibly new technology and different way of having church. But, so just come. Hide me deep in your cross, I ask in your name. Amen. So there is this predictable kind of letdown following Christmas, isn't there? If normal hasn't arrived yet, it's well on its way. Um, the food's been cooked. The tree has been decorated. Christmas cookies have been made. Presents opened. Christmas movies watched. And then comes the letdown. Anticipation now turns into exhaustion. And celebrations now turn into some kind of recovery. And all that is left is to think about the diet that begins in January. January, we will, where we will lose the 5 to 30 pounds we gained over Christmas. And we start to think about putting all those decorations back in storage. If you have a live tree, you start stressing over getting the tree out of the house so that you're not still finding pine needles in July. If, if you have an artificial tree, you're stressing about how to get it all back in that small little box. And um, if, if, you ha if you have Christmas decorations, you're trying to figure out how to put them all into some kind of package. And so Christmas celebrations now turn into these long return uh, lines, or maybe this year, finding return forms and shipping labels so that we can go to the UPS store to ship things off. What started as this celebration of food and family and fun has now resulted in us feeling kind of fat and lonely and cold. Some folks struggle this time of year with, with anxiety more so than other times of year. Family gatherings or, or going home produce anxiety for a good many people. Uh, finances and the financial pressure can produce anxiety. And I'm sure for some, there is this comparison thing between other families or siblings. And all these things cause us to worry. Everything seems to be heightened and more intense at Christmas. I was talking with a friend a number of years ago who's a good bit older than I am, and I asked him how his Christmas was, and he said that it was a it was great preacher. I got to see my favorite Christmas lights, and I thought that was a strange thing to say. So I said, what's your favorite Christmas lights? And he said, the taillights of my family as they're leaving my driveway. That's his favorite Christmas lights this time of year. And the unique traits of 2020 have certainly added to all of the emotional responses we've had this year, the emotions we're working through this Sunday after Christmas, a pandemic, a deeply divided election cycle, masks and social distancing, and a mess of other things have really resulted in emotional exhaustion this final Sunday of the year, this Sunday after Christmas. The word that I've been using to sort of describe what I've been feeling 
this time of year as I think about the pandemic and the new fears that are part of that and leading in that, that time, living in that time. The word I've been thinking about is simply wait. Fear produces weight, doesn't it? We feel the burden. We feel the weight for the community I lead. I feel the weight for the family that I'm a part of. I feel the weight for all those who have suffered loss that I care about and the folks that I hear their stories. And it's just a weight. And for me, the weight shows up in my reactions, my shortness with people or my tendencies to withdraw. And perhaps it helps to identify this is actually something we're all in together Nobody's alone. Nobody's unique in this. We're all going through it together. It's something that's common to the human experience this particular Christmas. Willie Nelson wrote a song titled Something You Get Through, and he first heard the line from Gerald Mann, a Baptist preacher who was a friend of his, and um, the song's about losing a love through death or through some kind of divorce, and I love the chorus of the song, and the song is this. It's not something you get over. It's something you get through. It's not ours to be taken. It's just a thing we get to do. Life goes on and on, and when it's gone, it lives in someone new. I find myself kind of identifying things in my life. This isn't something we're going to get over. This is something we get through. So I think Willie's right, at least when it comes to a good many things in life. There is much in life that things that are just weighty and exhausting, and I have to decide it's something I get through. But Willie isn't right when I think of Christmas. Have you ever paid attention to what the shepherds did right after the first Christmas? I assume they went back to their normal lives, just like you and I are getting ready to do after the vacation time. We're going to go back to our normal lives. Once we put the tree up and the tree in its proper place and all the direction, decorations in their boxes, we're going to go back to our normal lives. I assume the shepherds went to the places they lived and cleaned up messes and paid bills and raised their families and checked out social media to see what a great time everybody else was having and all the fellow shepherds did that first holiday. But none of the circumstances of their lives had changed. Even after that first Christmas, nothing had changed. Their lives themselves, who they were, had actually changed changed. Certainly their intellects had been challenged. Certainly they had experienced something they'd never experienced before. It was all brand new. And certainly they had emotions that were new to them. Their lives and the details didn't change, but something in them changed. This year I've been thinking a little bit about what it would be like to actually witness God becoming human, like for the first time. And then to go to the manger and then to return home to my normal life. It's kind of the question you and I face every year this time of the year. We too will soon return to our normal lives. And certainly the question has to be asked, so what? What difference has all of this made? The celebration, has it been all about a family celebration? Has it been all about traditions? What difference has it made? So to end our year, I want to go back to Christmas 101 with you. Why did this whole Jesus experience happen? What was the reason for the birth and the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus? And why in the world are we celebrating it this time of year? 
Paul, the writer of the writers of the, of, the, of the New Testament, gives us this reason for all the Christmas Easter stuff. And if you're a Bible underliner, this is a great one to underline because it summarizes everything. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, and it says this. Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. But instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. I wonder if that kind of change began to be yet undefined, but still part of the shepherds as they were walking away from the manger. Because there are really now two deals on the table. And before this, I'm not sure there were the two same deals. Do you see the two deals? There's this pull to live life merely for ourselves. That's certainly something we all acknowledge. Or this new pull to live life for Christ. Everybody's going to decide regarding this. The pull to live life for ourselves comes from what Scripture defines as sin. Sin has this gravitational pull in our lives. I would say it this way. Sin draws us away from life after God's glory toward a life after our glory. When we are pulled from God's kingdom, guess what kingdom we're pulled toward? There are only two deals on the table We're pulled to the kingdom of me, to my kingdom. Sin pulls us to an obsessive allegiance and compulsion to our own little kingdom of one. Sin puts what God wants on the back burner and he moves whatever we want to the front burner. And sin pulls us from any concern over what God might want and into an excitement first and foremost only over what we would want. I understand and I get sin's not a word we use very much, at least on a daily basis, and maybe it's not so popular in our culture. I used to hear it in reference to a number of things when I was growing up, but anymore, I don't think we talk about sin very much because we may struggle with using sin as a word to describe ourselves or what might be in our lives. So let me see if I can help us sort of understand this thing, sin, and what it's doing in our lives. See, sin is causing us to place ourselves in the center of our worlds. It places us there and begins to make life all about us. And and do you know why we do this? Do you know know why we do this? Because because we're the worst generation to ever walk the planet? Is is that why? (laughs) Why do we push ourselves in the middle? Is it because we're terrible people? Do we do this because of Justin Bieber or the Clintons or because we canceled March Madness in 2020? All those things may be contributing factors, but here's the main reason we allow sin to make life all about us. Are you ready? We put ourselves at the center because we always feel the need to have control. And if we're at the center of all things, then maybe we fool ourselves into believing we can control all things. We hate it if we aren't healthy, so we put ourselves in control. We want to be affluent, so we put ourselves in control, building our own little kingdoms. We do life only with people who agree with us or affirm us. We create lives that are predictable and easy because we want control. We avoid suffering like the plague because plague isn't good for kingdoms. And we remove obstacles for ourselves and the people we love at whatever cost. And when we are reminded that we really don't control any of these things for the long haul, 
we struggle with being happy, being content with this life, and sadly, with God. The problem isn't just that we're living in a pandemic this year. The problem isn't that we're trying to adjust to wearing a mask and social distancing this year. The problem isn't an election and the results. The problem isn't that we live in a world that's broken. The problem is much deeper than all these things. We all have a glory problem. You want to hear a not-so-popular message behind the Christmas story? We prefer living this life for ourselves over living our lives for something or someone bigger than who we are. It's a glory problem. See, see if you agree with me. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our work, in our friendships, and in the church, we've made everything about us and whether or not we like it or whether or not it's going to be good for us. That's what every decision we make is. And as a result of this glory problem, our dominating concerns have been reduced to what we want, what we need, and what our plans are, what our satisfaction is, and what our happiness is. And anything contrary to any of those things makes us feel out of control. I don't think there's anything wrong with necessarily wanting some control or wanting to be right or wanting beautiful things or to be part of a community that loves and affirms you or to be healthy. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's when the good things, though, become the ruling things that those things become spiritually dangerous to us. So, how are you doing on this? Is it really all about you, just as you take your moment to analyze this last Sunday of the year? I suspect there's a small percentage of you who would say, you know what, Tom? It really is all about me. I really would own that. That's kind of what's going on, and I appreciate your honesty. The rest of us might have a little trouble being so honest, so let me ask you another question, kind of a clarifying question that I've been gnawing on for the last couple of weeks. Here's the question. In the past two months, what has made you mad? What's made you angry? And all of us express that differently. Some fly off the handle, some slam a door, and some people resent and pile up, whatever it is. But think about it. For the last two months, what were the settings where you got angry? And as you work on your list, let me ask you another question. How many things that made you angry have anything to do with God's kingdom, God's call, or God's glory. You want to hear what this exercise led me to? If you're smart, you would say no right now. My anger evaluation determined I rarely, if ever, get angry about people around me breaking God's law. I get angry when people break my law. I get angry when people get in the way of what I want or think I need or if I don't get my way. I get angry when someone tries to rob me of glory or invade my kingdom. Which makes me ask, 
am I living or concerned for the glory of God in my life at all? What if unintentionally we've actually shrunk this life down to the size of our own glory? Sure, I love my spouse as long as I remain happy. Sure, I love my children when they do what I want them to do. Sure, I have friends as long as they agree with me. Sure, I love my church until someone offends me or says something I don't agree with. Sure, I'm generous as long as they do what I want them to do with my generosity. I think somehow sin unchecked has made us all glory thieves. Sin causes us to steal for ourselves what truly only belongs to God. We put ourselves in God's place. And life becomes this unending glory hunt, robbing from others and from God so we can have more glory. Well, here's some good news. All of this is why Jesus came. And the evidence is there. You may have just read over it. God knew we'd never win this glory battle on our own. God knew we wouldn't get angry about things that violate him. We'll only get angry about things that violate us. And so he sent the Christ child. Glory is part of the Christmas story. Have you paid attention? This is from Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. From chapter 2, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And then again, verse 14, same chapter, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Back to my shepherds. Do you remember the response of the shepherds as they left the manger scene? Chapter 2 of Luke, verse 17. After seeing the Christ child, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. The shepherds went back to their flocks, their normal lives, with one distinction. Now they're glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Glory is this word doxazo in Greek. It means to speak of something as deserving honor. It's the present active here, which means it never stops. It's constantly going on. They keep on glorifying and praising God. Well, maybe Christmas is that time of year where we are confronted and comforted by the glorious goodness of God and the radical humility of Jesus. God of infinite glory looked on me and he looked on you. Glory thieves that we are. But he didn't look on us with anger and he didn't look on us with jealousy. But he looked on us with redeeming love. Those of us who are his glory thieves. And he acted redemptively, and he acted preveniently. He acted to give us another option. 
Another option beyond spending 70 or 80 years piling up glory that goes completely away when we end up in a box. So God commissioned Jesus, his son, to leave his rightful position of glory, to become a suffering servant even to the point of death, so that you and I could be freed from this poison of self-glory. That is the doom of every sinner. I want to be big. I want to be strong. I want to be in charge. And God unleashed his glory on us through this saving work of Jesus. And anyone who believes is now showered with God's glory through forgiveness, God's glory of unconditional love, God's glory of divine wisdom, God's glory of his power in our lives, the glory of his mercy and grace, the glory of his sovereignty and the glory of his promises, and perhaps the best part, the absolute glory of his presence in our lives. He offered us this invitation to enter into this sanctifying process, a way for us to be holy like him, a way for us to transfer the glory that we've been robbing and pass it all on to him because it was all his to begin with. God offers this entirely different beat to dance this life to. Because of his glory, he turns our hearts away from the individual commitment to personal glory to begin to live for the very thing we're created for, truly, the glory of God. And that's the change we see in the disciples. It's the change we see in Mary. It's the change we see in all the Christmas cast of characters they found another reason to live. They found someone else to point glory toward instead of trying to keep it for themselves. Back to Paul's words. He said, Christ died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. The son of glory came to fight our glory battle so that we would be freed from our bondage to any other glory but the glory of God. You want to hear a really big secret? Christmas was never just about a day or a birth or even a manger. The real celebration doesn't get packed into a box with other decorations. Christmas has always been about the glory of God. The real celebration is we get to glory in the real glory of the season throughout this year. So the only question we have to deal with right now is whether we want to live another year piling up our own glory or if we want to join the shepherds and Mary and the wise men 
and even the Apostle Paul and live another year this time glorifying and praising God as we go. That's a good option, and that is really good news. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to contemplate how we will live this coming year, to pause in this moment and to think, okay, what difference does Christmas make? And to say from this point forward, what if I lived this coming year all for the glory of God? Not just the good stuff, not just the stuff that we hit out of the park, but the stuff that we don't even do well, the stuff that doesn't go the way we planned, the stuff that actually is difficult for us to process. What if we lived this entire year all for the glory of God? So whether we're going back to sheep or going back to illness, whether we're going back to health and wealth or whether we're going back to financial struggles, whether we're going back to functional families or dysfunctional families, what would it look like if this year we lived for your glory and your glory alone? That's some really good news. In your name, amen.